I'm excited about this study tonight. I was thinking about it as I was preparing this. Since last September, believe it or not, I've been in a series on Wednesday nights called Tough Questions. And then when the quarantine started, we started doing that virtually. And I really enjoyed that. That was months and months of wrestling with difficult questions about scripture, about God, about life. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fruitful. It was certainly fruitful for me. It was mentally stretching for me. But I hope what it did was it helped all of us realize that it is good to put our minds to work, to love the Lord with all our mind, not just our heart and soul and and strength. Uh, It's good to wrestle with difficult questions. That is a soul-stretching thing. That is a faith-producing thing to test your faith because there is truth in the Word of God. There's truth in Jesus. I hope it helped your faith grow. But all the while, uh, as I was doing these studies, I kept thinking, yeah, but I can't wait to get back to verse-by-verse Bible studies uh, on Wednesday nights. Because verse-by-verse studies through a single book of the Bible, that's really my wheelhouse. That's, that's what I am most comfortable with and enjoy the most. It's what, uh, if I ever retire from being a, a pastor, I hope I still get to teach verse-by-verse through the scriptures in some way, even if it's just my wife listening to me. Um, so tonight, I get to resume that, and I hope you'll find joy in that. There is, there is such fruitfulness in going slowly through a single book of the Bible. So I hope you'll do that with me, and not just watch one of these studies online once in a while, but actually open your Bible, read along with me, and see what the Word of God says. Because if you remember something I say that's great, that's gratifying. But the goal is that you would remember what the Bible says, what God says in his word, that you, would, that you would find something every week to apply to your life and say, here's an area where I can change, where I can grow closer to him, where I can experience his love more fully. So again, have your Bible open, even if it's just on your smartphone, that's just as valid, but read along with me as we study First and Second Corinthians. And let me just start this study by saying, And it's an old cliche. Someone told me long ago. I love it though. There are no perfect churches. If you ever find one, leave immediately before you ruin it. And that's the truth. I grew up in church. I've been working in churches since I was 23, uh, 22. Actually, yeah, 22 years old. That's that's been a while. Um, And I can tell you, every church I've been in has been wonderful, full of good people, but very, very flawed. And that includes this one. There are no perfect churches. And you can say that about every church you could ever meet, every, ever attend. You can find a flaw here and there and ways in which the church falls far short of the, the standard of Jesus Christ. That is true of every church you'll ever find. And then there's the church in Corinth. You see where I'm going with this? There are flawed churches. Every church is flawed. But then there's the church in first century Corinth. Corinth was a city in ancient Greece and... Paul had founded that church. We read about it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18. And there were a lot of exciting things going on there. Uh, A lot of people who had once been pagans who came to know Jesus personally, a lot of people who had had lives that were morally out of control, now seeking to follow Jesus down that straight and narrow path that leads to life and hope and, and peace and fulfillment and righteousness. But there were so many problems in Corinth. In fact, when I was in seminary back in the mid-90s, uh, there was a, a town 
near Denton. Some of you probably uh, are more familiar with it than I am if you're from that part of the state. But there's a town called Corinth, Texas. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I'd be really nervous if my first church out of seminary was a, a church in Corinth, Corinth, Texas. I mean, what if you were the pastor? Of her? I'm sure First Baptist Corinth is a wonderful church, Corinth, Texas. But I'd be nervous about it because it would remind me too much of the Corinth in the Bible. So let me talk, before we get into the Word, we're just going to cover the first nine verses tonight. But let's talk about some of the setting that Paul is writing to. So Corinth was essentially the Las Vegas of its time. Uh, what, what Las Vegas is to American culture, Corinth was, in, in essence, to the Greece of its culture. It was it was a port city, so sailors from all over the world came into that city. And what do sailors do when they've been out at sea for a long, long time and they're back in land and they've got money in their pockets? What kinds of activities do they perform? They're not visiting libraries or museums, right? <laughs> okay, this is the kind of city we're talking about. It was also a provincial capital, so there was a lot of money there. There were temples, including a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, if you know what Aphrodite is if you don't know what Aphrodite is the goddess of, then you can look it up. But uh, scholars will tell us there was a term in the ancient world called, it was a verb. It was called to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize meant to engage in activities that let's just say your mother would not approve of. And so Corinth was a city where people lived a life that let's just say was contrary to the will of God, morally speaking. And so an interesting place for a church to spring up. In this church, for all the good things that were happening, there were some incredible problems. There were serious divisions within the church. People within the church had different allegiances. They were not united by their love for Jesus. Instead, they had, they had allegiance to a particular preacher. Uh, this preacher introduced me to Jesus, or this preacher I think is the most effective one. So I'm, I'm in his camp. And so there were divisions in that way. There were also divisions about different spiritual gifts. People who had these gifts over here, people who could speak in tongues, for instance, considered themselves superior as believers in Jesus to those who didn't or couldn't. There was disorder in worship. Imagine being in worship on a Sunday morning and suddenly in the middle of a sermon or in the middle of a song or a prayer, suddenly some random person in the pew stands up and just starts shouting in tongues. No one knows what he's saying. No one knows why he's doing it, but to him, that was what he should do. And, and so there was a, an extreme disorder in the worship service. There was a defiling of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and that day, it, it seems that the Corinthian Christians took the Lord's Supper every Sunday, but it had become a joke. It, hadn't, it had none of its typical reverence, the reverence it was supposed to have. There was also doctrinal heresy within the Corinthian church. There were, there were people who believed things that weren't true, especially about the resurrection. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 15. There was adultery, there was incest that were being practiced, not just practiced, but tolerated. Not just tolerated, but celebrated within the Corinthian church. People said, look how, look how enlightened we are, that we have an open enough mind that people can engage in these relationships, and we don't judge them for that. So lots and lots of issues within the Corinthian church. Paul is at a distance at this point. He hears about these things somehow, and he writes them a letter. In a way, we should be thankful that the early churches had just as many problems as we do, because if not for those problems, we wouldn't have the letters of Paul. We wouldn't have the letters of John, the letters of Peter that have shown us so much truth 
of the Word of God. But it's important for us to, to center those teachings in the context they were originally written in so we know what these apostles really meant, what the Holy Spirit meant when he was speaking through them. Paul wrote this letter probably about the mid-50s, 55 or 56 AD, sometime about four or five years after he had planted the church and then moved on. So that's all your context. Now, let me just say this. The opening of Paul's letters, aside from one, and that's Galatians, they all pretty much follow the same format. Paul will state his name, give his qualifications, so to speak, and and talk about his co-writers, and then he will give thanks. This is the pattern of every letter of Paul except for Galatians. He always gives thanks at the beginning. He always gives thanks at the beginning of his letters. And you and I have a tendency, even serious Bible students, and I know there are some of you listening to me now, to just skim over that. That's not the meat. That's, that's just fluff. Let's get beyond that. Let's, let's get to the real issues of the letter. And I know why we do that. And it's partially the fault of preachers. But I want to say tonight, let's focus on the Thanksgiving at the beginning of this letter. We're in a time of, of upheaval in our culture. We're in a time of stress and anxiety and uneasiness about the future. What better time than now to remember what we have to be thankful for? So listen to the things Paul says here at the beginning of this letter. And I hope, my prayer is, that you will be enriched, that you'll be filled with gratitude toward God, and that you'll recognize how good we really have it, that you'll walk away with a sense of joy tonight. So verse one, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. So there in the first verse, you see several things. Paul calls himself an apostle. Apostle means one who is sent. Uh, He was sent by Jesus Christ, called by the will of God. Paul is, is quick always to say, the only reason I'm an apostle is because God chose me, not because I earned it. Notice also the name Sosthenes. There's one other place in the Bible where the name Sosthenes appears, and that's in Acts 18, and that's in a story that took place in the same town of Corinth. So here's the story really, really quickly, very bare-bones version. Um, the church in Corinth was growing. The Gentiles there were nervous. Actually, the Jews there were nervous about the growth of this church. And so a delegation of the Jews went to the local proconsul, a man named Gallio, and asked him to stop these Christians from spreading their, their message. And the, the proconsul Gallio had, had nothing but contempt for, for the Jews. And so he, he basically dismissed them. He said, what do I care? This is none of my concern, go away. And then the leader of the delegation was a man named Sosthenes. He was the president of the synagogue, which means he was not clergy. He was sort of like a very respected layman who made sure every week that things in the synagogue were taken care of. Sosthenes at that point was attacked, we assume by a group of local uh, Gentiles and beaten and uh, beaten there in front of the court. So we read that story in Acts 18, and then here in 1 Corinthians, four or five years later, we read that Paul's co-writer is a man named Sosthenes. And so it's very intriguing to think, what if that synagogue ruler who was there in the presence of Paul later said, hey, notice that Paul had mercy on me, Paul had no contempt for me, but these others did, maybe Jesus is real. Wouldn't it be great if that Sosthenes was this Sosthenes? We don't know that. I don't know how common that name was in that time. I just find it an interesting parallel. What we know for sure is that Paul calls him our brother. 
And this is a, a, a running theme in Paul's letters that Paul, in spite of writing basically half the New Testament, in spite of planting churches all over the known world and taking the gospel into modern day Europe, I mean, in my estimation, the greatest Christian who ever lived, yet whenever he refers to other people who are working alongside him, he doesn't say, and here's my staff. He doesn't say, here's my assistant. He doesn't say, here's my, uh, here's my, my backup. He says, my coworker, my laborer, my brother. Paul is quick to bring others uh, alongside him and say, this guy deserves just as much credit as I do, which is an example to all of us who ever get an opportunity to lead. So verse two, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's us, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has told us who he is. He's told us who he's writing to. And now the thanksgiving begins. So verse four, I give thanks to God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. So right there, the first thing he he gives thanks to God for is for grace. And and nobody in, no, no scriptural writer is more responsible for us knowing about the grace of God than Paul. Paul is the apostle of grace, you might say. God's grace, and Paul's point is this, everything good we have, you've been riched in him in every way because of God's grace. We think about, if you've you've been a Baptist or another evangelical Christian for most of your life, like I have, you, you know that your salvation is by grace alone. I mean, we, we've heard that message over and over again. I am saved by grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We tend to forget, though, that God's grace doesn't just extend to our salvation, the salvation of our soul. Every good thing we have is a gift of God. We have a ritual, a lot of us. We grew up saying a prayer over our meals. Why do we do that? It's not really something that's emphasized in scripture. I think we do it to remind ourselves, I wouldn't have food on my table if it weren't for God. Maybe we tend to forget that. Maybe even though we're praying over that meal, we're just doing it as a ritual. But remember, next time you pray over a meal, next time you eat, I wouldn't have food if it weren't for God. Think about a child, a small child, let's say a third or fourth grader comes home from school or from his friend's house and goes over to the refrigerator and, and pulls out Uh, a cookie and a glass of milk. And he sits down and he eats it and he thinks, boy, that's really good. Where did that cookie come from? Does Does he ever stop to think, it's because my mom and dad go to work every day. It's because my mom and dad went to the grocery store. It's because my mom or my dad actually baked this cookie. It's, I, owe, I owe it all to them. You know, that refrigerator didn't sprout the, the milk and cookies like fruit on a vine, and certainly that child didn't earn them. They were given to him as a gift, and we need to see ourselves the same way. Every good thing we have, even if we can point to things we did to accumulate those things. Okay, I went to work and I, I, I worked hard and I put, these, I put this money in a bank. I, I, I paid my down payment on this house and I'm making the mortgage payments and therefore it is mine. You couldn't do that if not for Jesus. You're not a self-made man. You're not a self-made woman. It is by grace alone. I want you to think, look back also to verse two when he calls us saints, called 
to be saints. Now, we use that word saint in a different way than the Bible does. We say saint as if it means a very, very righteous person, someone who is against the ordinary, uh, out of the ordinary in their righteousness. In the Catholic tradition, of course, saints are people who uh, the Pope has decided have the special status in heaven. But the Bible uses the word differently. The Bible uses the word saint to mean anybody who belongs to Jesus. Saint just means holy one, set apart one, people who are belonging to God. And so by the grace of God, you are a saint. And by the way, that's true of people we consider saints too. So for instance, in my own lifetime, I think about people like Billy Graham, uh, who preached the gospel to more individuals than anybody in human history. And only heaven knows how many people are in heaven today because of his ministry. I think about Mother Teresa, this woman who left a comfortable life teaching the, the, the daughters of wealthy people in Bulgaria and became uh, an angel of light to the lowest of the low, to people who were dying on the streets of Calcutta, people who offered her nothing in return and simply did that simply because she took literally Matthew 25, that it, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers, you've done it for me, and said, every time I help someone die with dignity, I am blessing my Lord Jesus. I think about people like that, and I think, wow, those are great people. And yet, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, not a single thing they ever did earned them the right to be in heaven today. Not a single thing. God didn't love Billy Graham any more because of his preaching than he loves me. God didn't love Mother Teresa any more because of her acts of mercy than he loves you. It's all by grace. It is all a gift. And the things we do in response to that grace are just our way of saying thank you to the Lord. So, thankful for grace. Should we be thankful for grace? Absolutely. Paul begins by saying, I thank you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, he says, For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. In all your speaking and in all your knowledge. That's an interesting thing, interesting thing to be thankful for. So let's, talk, let's kind of take that backwards. Knowledge. Have you ever thanked God that you know the truth about him? There are millions of people on this earth who don't know, maybe billions of people on this earth that don't know the truth about God and about his son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever thanked God that somewhere back in your life, there were people, probably numerous people, who made it their goal to tell you the truth about Jesus? For me, it was my mom and dad. It was, it was my grandparents. It was uh, particular Sunday school teachers I had as a child. And then later on through life, it was, it was pastors. It was, uh, it was deacons and Sunday school teachers. It was uh, professors at seminary. I, I think about all the people who poured knowledge into me. I didn't earn that. God gave it to me. What a gift. It's a good exercise sometimes to sit down and just write down, here are the people who've been most influential in my faith up to this point, and give thanks for those people. And if they're still alive, write them a note and say, thank you for the way you influenced me toward God. But then he also talks about, be thankful for your speaking. Now, this is an interesting thing because there are some of us, like me, who feel called to speak about Jesus. That's, I, I would if you told me I couldn't speak about Jesus, I'd be miserable because this is basically the only thing I've ever been good at. And that's debatable, I guess. But uh, there are some of us who enjoy speaking publicly or one-on-one -on -one about Jesus and others of us who are shy, others of us who are more introverted, others of us love Jesus just as much 
as the people who are verbal and vocal, but just don't feel comfortable talking about it. Maybe you feel like you lack education. Maybe you feel like you lack training or you lack eloquence. The, the Greeks loved eloquence. They just admired someone who could express themselves well and could share well-thought-out things. And apparently, the Corinthian Christians were good at doing that. For all their flaws, they had become very eloquent in speaking truth. And so Paul's giving thanks for that. So what do I say to those of you who say, I'm just not good at talking about Jesus or about anything else for that matter? Just understand, not everybody's called to get up and give a sermon. Not everybody is called to teach a Sunday school class. Not everybody's called to get up and give his testimony or her testimony in front of a group of people. But all of us, all of us are called to share. And your way of sharing may be different than mine. In fact, it probably will be. But you have a way of communicating. And it may be through your keyboard. It may be through acts of mercy. It may be through any variety of means. But you need to communicate what you know about Jesus to the people God places before you. And give thanks for those opportunities that you have. What a blessing it will will be. So what else can we be thankful for? Verse 6. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Our testimony was confirmed in you. Paul is thankful that that the fact that the Corinthian Christians are now saved, that they used to be this way and now they're this way. They used to engage in these kinds of lives and now their lives are completely different. That they used to be desperate and unhappy, now they're full of joy. Paul is thankful that the Corinthian Christians are walking billboards of the truth. And you and I can be thankful for that transformation in our own life too. We can be thankful that we have the amazing privilege of being God's primary means of advertising the gospel. You know, I I love when people pay a lot of money to put up a billboard that speaks some kind of biblical truth. I'm, I'm excited when I see some celebrity on television give glory to God at the end of a football game or, or at an award ceremony or uh, at an inauguration or something. I'm, I'm grateful for any time Jesus's name gets exalted. But biblically speaking and practically speaking, the most persuasive, the primary way that God gets his message across is through us. Not celebrities, not billboards, but ordinary people. We are God's walking advertisements. And that is an incredible privilege, and we should be grateful for it, that our lives have meaning and purpose. And that means that no matter what you do for a living, there's no such thing as an insignificant life. You may have a job that seems completely dead end. You may be, uh, let's say, a busboy at a restaurant and think to yourself, man, I'm not even a waiter. I don't even get tips. But you're a walking billboard for Jesus. Everybody who meets you sees Jesus in you as you follow him. So your life is just as significant as the CEO of a major corporation because you have the same opportunity that CEO has to advertise the gospel. Does the CEO do other things that are great? Do they employ lots of people? Do they have influence on society? Yeah, they do. But all of that pales in comparison to the importance of advertising Jesus and and communicating his truth and his gospel. So give thanks for that. Verse 7 says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. The you in that verse is plural. Remember, 
a couple of months ago, do you remember there used to be a life before quarantine? In church, I said that the word y'all is a biblical word, and this is an example. Paul is not saying that every Christian has every spiritual gift. If that were the case, we, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. I mean, we'd, we'd have everything. We'd have everything we need. We wouldn't need each other, for sure. We'd be lone rangers. No, the you is plural. He's saying you as a church, you as the Corinthian Christians, you have every gift in the midst of you, everything you need. You lack nothing. And that's important for us. It's important for us to note that as a church, as First Baptist Church, or if you go to another church uh, and you're watching this tonight, your church has everything it needs. Now, I've been in ministry for quite a while, for almost half my life, well, more than half my life. And I know what it is to say, yeah, I love my church, but I wish we had more of this. I wish we had better buildings. I wish we had more tithers. I wish we had more young people. I wish we had, I wish we had better, uh, better leadership in this position. I wish we had better preaching. I wish we had better music. It's easy to look at another church and say, well, if we had that, we could be incredibly successful. We could do great things. But the truth is we lack nothing. God is faithful. He provides what we need. And so what we have is enough. It is more than enough to accomplish what God has placed before us. And I don't think we at First Baptist have any lack of self-esteem about our congregation. I, I get the feeling we're very excited about where God has placed us and what he's given us. But just in case, when we start to get down, when we start to complain, when we hit hard times and hard times will come, remember, we lack for nothing. He's blessed us with every gift. And then finally, we get to, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So several things right there to be thankful for, all centered around the end of time. And this is something that I can't emphasize enough. The New Testament writers and the first Christians, the people who actually knew Jesus personally, were much more excited about the end of this world than you and I tend to be. We tend to try to create heaven on earth right now. We tend to think more in terms of, okay, how can I increase my financial bottom line and build a good marriage and raise good kids and have a happy life? And all of that's good. But the early Christians would have said, okay, do all those things, but every day you ought to be thinking, if Jesus comes back today, hallelujah. If Jesus comes back today, I want to be ready. That ought to be our constant thought. That ought to be the source of our hope. They thought about it every day, and so should we. He says, we should be thankful that we know that God's going to be faithful to the end. We don't have to worry that God's going to change his mind about us. We don't have to worry that God is going to decide at the end of time, you know, the new heavens and the new earth, maybe that's not a good idea after all. Let's just keep this whole earth thing going. God is not going to change his plans his plans will take place. Note how many times in this, in this one passage that Paul references Jesus. John Chrysostom, who was a second century preacher, uh, says that the letters to the Corinthians have more references to Jesus than any other of Paul's letters, perhaps because of the situation the Corinthian Christians were in. Uh, we don't know that, but we know that Paul's focus was on Jesus. And notice how many times he references the end. 
the coming of Jesus, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when we see him for the first time, and when those first century Christians truly is as the king of creation, have a little technical difficulty here, um, that's the true source of our hope. That is the hope that will not die. And then the best news in here, he says, um, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be thankful for something, be thankful that when you see Jesus face to face, you will be guiltless. Guiltless. That doesn't mean that you can just not worry about your sins now because it's all going to be washed away when Christ returns. No, we should, we should strive for righteousness as much as possible. The good news is there is an end to our struggle. Because if you're ever frustrated with yourself, and saying, why do I keep making these same mistakes over and over again? Why do I keep letting my Lord down and hurting people I love over and over again? If you're, if you're disappointed with yourself in that, and by the way, if you're not, you should be, just know there's an end to that struggle. There's a day coming when you'll no longer have to say you're sorry because there'll be nothing to apologize for when everything you do will be completely bound up in the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So let me just close with this. Paul has just given us a lot of reasons to be thankful. Which one meant the most to you personally? Go back and read over this passage and just ask yourself, okay, which one of these things hits my heart? And just take a moment and say, Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this. Spend just a minute of your time praising God for how he's blessed you. There are so many ways we can get caught up in self-pity and, and, and self-focus and get discouraged and depressed but think about all the reasons we have to rejoice. Let's take a moment to do exactly that. I hope you will. And I look forward to seeing a lot of you on Saturday at 5 or Sunday at 8.30 or 11. And for those of you who can't be there this weekend, I look forward to worshiping with you online. But remember, God is with us and he's doing great things. God bless you and have a great week.